All right. Uh, as you know, we're studying the ministry of trouble. And uh, no one got in more trouble than Ralph Cramden. And, all right. Ralph is the perfect guy. And he's always got that pride working, always thinking he can do stuff. All right. Now, in today's lesson, uh, chapter 4, verse 35, it's uh, when Jesus stills the storm. And I was reading about this in, in a commentary, and it told me that the early church, you know, in the ver- very first century church, they had a lot of trouble. They were persecuted. They had all kinds of storms of, of every kind. And this was one of their favorite stories. And they kind of used it. Uh, that They thought Jesus had actually done this for their benefit, you know. Uh, as long as Jesus is with it, was with us, we can, we can uh, endure any storm. Um, and so uh, it, was, it was a great story for them. And uh, from Matthew's account, we know that Jesus has just given the Sermon on the Mount. He's healed uh, hundreds of people, taught for long hours, all with large crowds closing in on him. He's incredibly tired. He can't get away from the crowds. So he gives orders to his disciples Quick, get the boats. And he orders them to get in the boats to go to the other side to get away from these crowds. He's so tired that he gets down in the boat and goes to sleep. He probably hadn't been asleep in two or three days, you know, with all these crowds after him. Uh, And so it's going to be an incredible contrast between Jesus' calm and rest and the disciples are frantic and wild and scared to death. And here's Jesus Got no fear at all. So it's a great contrast um, of life. Those who are totally entrusting themselves to God and those who are scared of everything because they have no faith. And he's going to use it as a test of faith for his disciples. Everything that Jesus does really has an important purpose to it. Most people think that the miracles he did was because he had compassion, and he did. But if you look, as you look at all the miracles, they were really a teaching tool for his disciples, almost every one of them. And so everything he does is a, a teaching tool he sees as a, a way to reach out to his disciples and teach them a lesson. So we read in the text, on that day when evening had come, and like I said, Matthew's account said, Jesus ordered them into the boat. So uh, they didn't really have any choice, and Jesus was basically telling them, get in the boat, go out in the middle of the sea. So when the storm comes up, guess what? Jesus has actually guided them into a storm. And if, if you're in the boat, if you're one of the disciples in the boat, you're going, wait a minute. He told us to get into the boat and took us right into a storm? And uh, it's very important to realize what Jesus is doing there is that he's actually testing their faith. That's what this will be all about. When this story is over, this short story is over, they'll not only have a new and improved vision of who Jesus is, they believed he was the Son of God, they believed in the Messiah, but now they're going to experience it. He's invaded their world, and he's going to do something in their world that's going to help them experience that he's the Son of God and has the power of God to do the works of God, and so they're going to be blown away. And it's also going to be a test of their faith. They think they have faith, but they don't realize whether they do or not or how much they have until they get in the storm. And that's what our life is like. 
you, don't, you can study all you want, read all you want about faith, but you're not going to really understand it until the storms of life come your way. And as soon as you get in that trouble that, and you have that problem, that crisis situation that has no cure to it seemingly, no way to solve it, an unsolvable problem, then you learn what faith is. Then you understand how important it is. And that's what he's doing here uh, in this miracle of stilling the storm. All right? So the boat serves as an image of those, the people in the boat are entrusting their lives to Jesus. Just like we are in life, when we believe in him, we're entrusting ourselves, our eternal destiny, to Jesus. And they're following him. They've been separated from the crowd over there. And we know the crowd, uh, they're coming to see Jesus, but they're very fickle. As long as he's doing miracles for them and, and doing stuff for them, they love him and they can't get enough of him. But as soon as he's, he uh, changes from a difficult message, you'll see them in uh, stories we're coming up, you'll see that they fall away. When the persecution comes, they fall away. When times get tough, they're gone right? Uh, and so his true disciples are, in a sense, separated from the crowds of the world uh, who are just there for the stuff, you know, make us some bread, you know, feed us the 5,000 uh, loaves of bread and uh, do this for us and heal me of my illness. As long as he's doing that, they're there, you know. Uh, and so we read, Jesus says to them, let us go over to the other side. So he orders them in the boat, and then he says, let us go to the other side. The other side, uh, if we have a map, do we have a map, no map? All right, no problem. But if you can, in your, uh, in your mind's eye, if you can imagine the Sea of Galilee, it's a, a long natural lake. It's about 15 miles long and about seven miles across. Uh, and so on the west side is Israel and the Jews. On the east side is the Decapolis, which are 10 Greek cities. So if you spoke Greek like I don't, you'd know that the Decapolis means 10 cities. Uh, and so he's going across to get away from the Jewish crowds He's going to go to the other side, Gentile side, where nobody knows him, right? Uh, and he can get some rest. At least that's what it seems like. So let's see what happens. So leaving the multitude behind, they took him along with them just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. So it wasn't just the one boat. It was all of his closest followers got in other boats and went with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. So they're in danger of sinking. And yet, he's asleep. We read in verse 38, Jesus himself is in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? See, they're saying, wait a minute. You're sitting there asleep? How can you be asleep when we're getting ready to sink? We're all going to die. Wake up! Don't you care? And uh, I think throughout the Bible, all the, all the main biblical characters in the Bible go through this. I mean, you could go back to, uh, all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, God told him to go to the land of Canaan. He got there. They're in the middle of a drought and a famine. 
You know, he goes, what the heck? God sent me here to this mess? Nothing to eat or drink? You know, and then Jacob has all that trouble uh, with Uncle Laban. Here's Jacob, the next, you know, patriarch. He has to go live with Uncle Laban for 20 years, and he gets cheated like a hundred different times by Uncle Laban. I mean, it's just one long 20-year period of harassment and trouble. And, uh, and you can go through every single character. David, King David, you know, he, he, the hero. He slays Goliath for King Saul, and for his trouble, Saul starts throwing spears at him because he gets jealous of his popularity, and he sends an army out to kill David. So this, this idea of trouble coming as is just a way of life, as a part of life, is a real part of the Bible. And of course, we have experienced that as well. This is a fallen world. It's a troubled world. There's trouble out there. And if everything is hunky-dory in your world right now, that's great, but hang on. <laughs> because something's coming. I don't know much, I'm not much of a predictor, but I know trouble is coming. Adverse circumstances are coming, you can just write it down, it's going to happen. It's part of life in this world. And what God does, he allows it, and we'll talk about why he does that in a minute, but he allows it, and then he has a ministry in the midst of the trouble. He's going to improve your character, he's going to build you up in spite of the trouble, in the midst of the trouble. When we pray, we're going to say, get rid of the trouble. But he's not. He's just going to help you persist and get through the trouble. See? And so that's very important to see that in what he's doing here with his own closest disciples is working on their faith and their character here with this storm. And so look, the appearances are that Jesus just doesn't care. He's tired, and he wants to sleep, and he's not worried about it. And the fact that they're all getting ready to die, it just looks like he, it doesn't matter. He's, he's not interested, see? And that's kind of like what happens with us when we get in trouble and have adverse circumstances, or we get really sick or whatever. You know, we're on our knees suddenly praying, you know. And uh, if God doesn't answer it pretty fast, we get pretty upset about it. You know, where is God when you need him, you know? The hurricane comes, where is God when the hurricane, you know, all this kind of stuff you hear all the time on the news. And it's just natural that we think that way. You also think when something bad happens to you, what have I done to deserve this? I don't deserve it. You know, and that may or may not be true. I can tell this bunch, they deserved it. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> all right. And so look what he does. They say, don't you care? They wake him up. Verse 39, and being aroused, he rebukes the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. What just happened? What did he just do? He spoke to the wind. He spoke to the ocean or the sea. How, who does that? And... The fact is, it's the Creator speaking to His creation. It's what just happened. Some uh, passages, just to back that up, uh, the New Testament is very clear that, you know, in the Godhead, Jesus is part of the, His function in the Godhead is creation. 
And so we read in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact essence of God. He is God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Everything that's created was created by him, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Then again in Hebrews 1, Uh, We read, and Jesus, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this is God in the flesh speaking to his own creation. And it obeys him. It obeys him. And what we're going to see is... The, the uh, disciples were scared of the storm. But after they see Jesus speak to the creation and it obeys him, they're going to be scared of Jesus. <laughs> Much more than the storm. Right? And that's what's important. You know, you always hear things like uh, the fear of God. And it would be a mistake to think they're, they're mean, you know, like you go into a haunted house and you're scared or something like that. No, the fear of God is that realization of who God is and the power that he has and how big he is, you know, the awe and the respect and the reverence that you have for him. That's the fear of God. And they, in the boat with Jesus, suddenly had that fear of God and that was much bigger thing and much more powerful in their life than some silly storm. Much more so than some storm, all right? So, Jesus, just, just so you'll know, Jesus aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. It responded to his word. When you think about cre- how was how does uh, the creation account in Genesis one and two how does it uh, lay out the creation? How did God create? He spoke it into existence. He created it by His power, and the same way He spoke to His creation to calm down. And what was their reaction? He said to them. So here's the whole purpose of what he's doing here. He says to his disciples, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? So that's what this is about. You guys, you're, you're, you're afraid of that storm? You're with me. I told you to get into the boat and go to the other side, not go out in the middle and sink. You can trust me. Why is it that you have no faith? And when they saw that and heard what he said, they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And of course, that's a recurring question throughout all these stories that we're going through in the book of Mark. Who is this guy? And even though they know who he is, the experience of it is so totally awesome that it blows their mind Every single time, as it would ours. And we find also that their real problem was not the storm. Their real problem is their faith. And of course, you can transfer that 
to ourselves as well. When we get in trouble, when we have these adverse circumstances, our real problem is we're focused only on that. When in fact, we should know that God is involved, God loves you, and God is going to cause all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord. See, God is providentially working in your life even through the storms, even through the worst troubles that we could possibly have, God is doing something. He's building your faith. He's teaching you all kinds of different things, right? Uh, and so we've got this, uh, first of all, is it safer to be in the boat with Jesus in a storm or on the beach with the crowd alone? It's safer to be in the boat with Jesus the disciples are safer in that boat even than that crowd on the beach. Before he did this, I'm sure when the storm was raging, they were going, man, I wish I'd stayed back there with, you know, with my cousins or whoever's back there, right? Instead of come out in this boat. But now they realize what's important is being with Christ and entrusting their lives to him. And so the uh, ministry of trouble that we're talking about, just some backup verses from the Bible. In Romans 5, he writes, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Does anybody else do that? All right, I'm sick. Yes. <laughs> I'm broke. All right. No. We exult in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. Where is your hope? It's, it's where your faith is. It's in Him. So as you persist and get through these troubled times and overcome the problems, then it builds your faith and the hope that you have in Christ. James says, consider it all joy. Brethren, when you encounter various trials, why would you consider it joy? Because you know that the testing of your faith, and that's what it is, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's a real reason that God allows the storms of life. There's a real reason and purpose and God standing back and letting these things happen. And then, of course, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had just laid out all the terrible things that happened to him. He said, I've been beaten times without number, thrown in jail, you know, a dozen times, beaten with rods, stoned, left for dead, and went on and on and on. And then he explained his, his attitude about that, his perspective on that. God has said to me, he also had a thorn in the flesh, which is a terrible physical ailment. I'm sure everybody here, if you're like me, you've got something like that. Uh, your lower back goes out, or you have migraine headaches, or your shoulder, knee, hip, whatever. You know, and it won't go away. The thorn in the flesh. And Paul says, God has said to me, he prayed to get rid of the thorn and all this other trouble. God has said, look, my grace is sufficient for you. For power, God's power is perfected in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ 
may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, insults, distress, persecutions, difficulties, because it's all for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So his weakness of the flesh just proves that when he perseveres and gets through things, it's the strength that God has given him, see. Uh, And so it's a biblical view of trouble that the world does not have. You can actually rejoice when you're in trouble because you know that God's doing something. You know the attributes of God. You know that God loves you. You know that God has forgiven you. He wants the best for you. And uh, somehow, some way, no matter how difficult the situation is, he's going to come through with that in the end. All right, so God's ministry of trouble uh, is kind of the viewpoint of this lesson of the storm. His disciples uh, are just blown away by it, but they find out that the real enemy was not the storm. The real enemy was their lack of faith. And they see what Jesus is doing and who he really is. They experience who Jesus is in this miracle. And they learn that it's a lot safer to be with Jesus in a storm than in the calm without him. Can, can, can you honestly say that? You know, ask yourself. Don't say it out loud. <laughs> can you actually say, I'd rather be broke with Jesus than rich without him? Now, I think we could all say that, but when it comes time for that to actually happen, you know, we'd probably be like the disciples, Right? But you know through these stories and through the Bible and who God is, you're better off broke with him or hungry with him or in whatever trouble it is, you're better off with him than the people who are without him, no matter what their situation is, see. Um, And they learn that through the storm. I think you also see that it drives them to Jesus. Where did they go when they, they're expert sailors, right? They're supposed to be knowing what they're doing, and yet they couldn't save themselves, no matter how good they were. They're all fishermen by trade. They've all been on that lake a million times. They know everything there is to know about navigation and sailing, but they were helpless. Only the carpenter could save them, and so it literally drove them to Jesus for the answers to these storms. And they are exposed to the real enemy, their faithlessness. And they're humbled. And as we know, everybody needs humility. It's something that very few people have, but everybody needs. And you can't learn it in a textbook. You have to experience it. How do you become humble? You experience the storms of life. And they beat you down like it did the disciples here. And they have to admit their weakness and that they couldn't save themselves. Right? And that's what's great about the storms of life. It's going to bring you down and make you depend on, trust in the one who's there, who loves you and wants to help you. Right? Okay. So you're, you're expecting, you're expecting, okay, now they get to rest. They hadn't been asleep in 48 hours, 
and they're going to the other side. I'm sure they're going over there and get some really good rest. Nobody even knows them over there. If you said that, you'd be wrong. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And again, that's where there were ten cities, the uh, ten city, Greek cities, they were the Decapolis. And then uh, some of the people that lived in this particular area were the Gerasenes. And as soon as they get out of the boat, when he had come out of the boat, immediately, just as they're stepping out of the boat, what happens? A man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. This is a crazy man. He has lost his senses. And he is naked. Try to imagine this guy, this wild guy. Hair hadn't been cut in years. Long beard. He's completely naked. He's taken stones and beat himself and gashed himself. So there's blood and dirt and everything all over him. It's the worst looking guy imaginable. And he literally confronts them as they're getting out of the boat. A crazy man, right? What are they to think? This guy had his dwelling among the tombs. He lived in the graveyard. Lived in the graveyard. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. This guy is really a picture of humanity, of fallen humanity. How so? A, he's alienated from everyone. He's alienated from God. Secondly, he's groaning, and he's got all kinds of trouble and misery. You ever noticed uh, people's reaction? They don't, I don't think they even know they're doing it, but you know, when something happens, they go, oh, God. what is that? It's groaning. Everybody does it, you know, when trouble comes, when there's problems, when they see something they don't like, oh, right? Well, that's common in the world. That's what people do. And he's also self-destructive. Think of the lifestyles of the people out there and how self-destructive it is. You know, the Bible uh, gives rules, you might say, or precepts about Uh, sexual relationships and about alcohol and about drugs and about every other kind of thing. And why? Because God doesn't want you to have any fun? No, because God knows it's self-destructive. He knows it's self-destructive. You know? It's not going to end well. And God knows that. People, we don't seem to know it. You know, when you look at the statistics on, you know, how many are hooked on drugs and how many deaths come from uh, overdoses and how many people have uh, sexually transmitted diseases. And, I mean, it's just overwhelming, the numbers. They're self-destructive. They don't seem to be able to help themselves. And what else? They are subject to, in that sense, they are subject to the adversary of God. We're going to see this guy is actually subject to the demonic forces within him and who are just fallen angels who are in league with the adversary of God. That's who they are. And we've talked about, you know, where'd they come from and how come in Jesus' stories they keep popping up? 
Well, normally, in this world and that world, they were under the radar, right? Nobody even knew they were there. That's, that's their strategy. They're doing all kinds of things, but they're under the radar. Nobody sees them. Nobody knows they're there. But when Jesus comes into the world, they know, they recognize him as the Son of God, and all the scripture, all the prophecies were that when Jesus comes back, talking about the second coming of Christ, he's going to end all the corruption and the evil and the fall, and he's going to judge the world, and he's going to throw all the fallen angels into the pit. And so when they see Jesus come on the scene, they're all alarmed. What are you doing here, Jesus? You're the Son of God. What do you, what do you want with us? What are you going to do? See, they're afraid he's going to throw them in the pit. So they come out, so to speak. And you see them in a lot of these stories. Uh, just because Jesus has come into the world, that's a pretty unique event. God shows up in the flesh, uh, just like all the prophets said he would, and these guys are going, Jesus, have mercy on us. Don't throw us in the pit. And so that's what you're going to see with this guy. This poor guy, verse 5, constantly Night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he's crying out and gashing himself with stones, self-destructive, beating himself up. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he, the demons inside of him recognized who Jesus was. And he ran up and bowed down before him, looking for mercy. They feared God. They want mercy from God, even though they're fallen angels. Crying out with a loud voice, uh, the voice came out of the man saying, What do I have to do with you, Jesus? What are you going to do to us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They recognize him. I implore you by God, do not torment me. Please, Jesus, don't throw me into the pit. Don't hurt us. Don't do that. Uh, so what we're going to see is what I would call a conniving, scheming, negotiating, demonic plot. What they're going to do, they're going to think, they're going to try to get Jesus to cast them out of the man and into this herd of pigs. This herd of pigs. So that seems innocent enough except for poor pigs. But uh, what their scheme really is, they're going to run the pigs off into the sea and thus create an economic crisis in that area so that the people who live there are going to go, what happened to all of our animals, our herds? We're broke. They're all dead. And they'll ask him to leave. That's what I think their scheme is. You know, it's really a wild story. And most people read it and go, why would they want to come out and go into the pigs? And why would Jesus do that? And why, why, you know, uh, when you realize the, the context of this and who they are and what Jesus is doing, see, and you'll see how they think they have defeated him when in, and in fact it's just going to be ju just the opposite. So let's look at it. He had been saying to the man who was possessed, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. So he had more than one demon, this poor guy. And the word Legion is a, a Roman, a Latin word, 
uh, describing a troop of soldiers, as many as 6,000. So this guy is, you might say, a Pandora's box of demons. He's got every kind of demon in, in there, man. Uh, and so he began to, the legion, the demons began to entreat Jesus. Beg, that's what entreat means. Beg Jesus. Earnestly. Whatever you do, don't send us away. Don't send us out of the country. Don't throw us into the pit. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. We'll leave the guy and you can just send us in these swine. And Jesus, you and your disciples are all Jewish. You don't like pigs anyway. So it's pretty sneaky, isn't it? Yeah, you got to hand it to them. They're pretty smart. Good negotiators. And so Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd then rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Gone. All these big pig bodies floating around out there in the water, they're all dead. See? Now, if you go to Israel and you, and you drive down, there's a, a road right along the Sea of Galilee on that east side, and there is one spot on that east side where there's a cliff that hangs out over the Sea of Galilee. So that's got to be the place. So when we drove by there last June when I had a group there, the guy said, and there it is. That's where the pigs jumped off the cliff into the, you know, the sea. So, one detail you need to know uh, is that the pigs were owned by a local corporation called Acme Swine, Inc. <laughs> and all the people that lived in that area had stock, naturally, in their own community corporation. They owned stock in Acme Swine, Inc. And the loss of 2,000 of Acme's pigs mean the stock will plummet. So they all had their phones out that day looking at their stock quotes. And Acme swine took a nosedive of about 90%. So they're upset. What the heck has happened to our investment? We're broke. And so they come out to find out what happened. So the herdsmen who were responsible for the pigs, you know, they were in a CYA situation, cover your, you know. <laughs> they went in and said, well, it wasn't our fault. We didn't do it. So the herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and out in the country everywhere, and the people came to see what just happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. So, Jesus had had time. This guy's now completely normal again. They've cleaned him up, given him a shave, cut his hair, and put clean clothes on him. He's restored to the person he was originally created to be. And the people come out, and they see him, and they go, that's, that's the guy he, that was demon-possessed. Look at him now. They're amazed by it. And you would think, you would think they'd be happy and praising God. 
gosh, look what happened to this poor guy. We're so happy for him, you know. No. All they care about is their monetary loss. I'm sure there's no people that you know that are like that. <laughs> exactly. And so verse 16, those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine dying. And what was their response? Thank you so much for, he, for helping this man. No. They began to entreat Jesus to depart. Get out of here. You're the cause of this. And so Jesus and his guys are going to go back to the Jewish side. But first... First, naturally, the guy who's now normal and in his right mind is going to say, please let me go with you. I want to follow you. I'm a new person and, and you've done it. And I want to attach myself to you and be a part of your group. But Jesus, verse 19, did not let him Go with them. But instead he said to them, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. So no, you go back to the Decapolis and tell everybody that know, has known you when you were a, a demon-possessed guy and show them that's who I was before Christ. This is me in Christ. This is the difference that Christ can make in your life. And that's what he does. So verse 20 we read, And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, question. Was he successful? Did anybody come to Christ as a result of his witness? Absolutely. If you look forward, we don't have time to do that, but in seven, Mark 7, 31, Jesus comes back to the Decapolis where they asked him to leave. And when he comes back, great crowds come out to meet him. Because they had heard this story. And they welcome him as from the Lord. So yeah, he came into the land. This guy was a demoniac and he left him a great missionary. Is that awesome? It's an incredible test of faith for his disciples. And he witnessed the gospel to all the people on the east side of the lake in the Decapolis through this man's testimony. Who won? The demons who jumped in the ocean or Jesus? Yeah. He has a greater plan, a bigger plan than people can even imagine. And God is always at work. So, as we said, the demoniac was a picture of humanity, but now he's different in that he's come to Christ and he's none of these things. It made all the difference in the world having Christ as his Savior. Was this predicted? These, these were all Gentiles, right? Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before, predicted 
I permitted myself, this is God speaking, to be sought by those who did not ask for me, meaning Gentiles. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. Here I am, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. So it's a contrast between the Gentiles that would come to Christ and his own people, the Jews, who were rebellious against him. C.S. Lewis, and we'll close with this, on this story, C.S. Lewis said, In my life before Christ, I was a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, and a harem of hatred. My name was Legion. But he was introduced to Christ and his whole life changed, just like the man in the story. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these great stories, which mean so much to us. And I pray that we would all be convicted that no matter what trouble and what problems we may have, Lord, you're there with us in the storm. And we need to turn it over to you and live in complete faith and dependence on you, Lord, and look for the what you're trying to teach us and try to understand and, and see it as a faith-building experience. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah.